Good morning, everybody, and Merry Christmas. Christmas is almost here. I decided I was going to do my Christmas shopping early this year, so I went out yesterday to buy presents, and I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to wait about two or three days before Christmas and get it all done. So, um, But we're, we're getting close in the Duran house, so that's great. Um, my name's David Duran, and I am the church planting resident here at Doxa. In case you haven't heard, my family and I are moving to Plymouth, Massachusetts next summer to begin the work of planting a church. And as you all know, I mention this every time that I preach, and I hope that in reminding you of this, you'll be encouraged to pray for us. I met with a retired pastor last week, and he actually pastored on the south shore of Massachusetts, very close to where, Lord willing, we're going to plant the church. And he kept stressing to me over and over again, probably four times throughout our conversation, that the spiritual oppression and warfare is very real in New England. Uh, We know, and we know that's true here as well, and we know that we do battle in the heavenly realm through prayer. So pray for us, pray for New England. Let's continue to pray for uh, the Grand Strand here. Uh, you know, I was, I was actually talking with Randy, our lead pastor, about this last week, just how the, we feel like the Lord is growing our congregation in prayer. And it's, it's been a tremendous blessing for me personally to be able to grow in my prayer life these past two years at Doxa Church. We want to be a church that is committed to the Lord in prayer. And I can, I can honestly say that I have grown in my personal prayer life through the times of corporate prayer that we have here together. And really through praying with many of you, I, I, I can testify that my prayer life has got deeper and richer just through putting into practice what we know is true. And we actually have a prayer service that takes place right here in this room every Sunday at 9 a.m. And if you are someone who wants to gather together with other Christians and earnestly pray for our community, and earnestly pray for our church, I invite you to come and take part in that prayer service. Our personal prayer lives will only enhance as we pray corporately together. And I can certainly testify to that reality. Well, uh, why don't we go ahead, let's pray now, and then we're going to look at God's word together. And just want to remind you, I'm going to be doing the talking here as we pray, but let's let this be a collective prayer from all of us. So in our own way, as I lead, let's, let's pray to the Lord now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how glad we are that we get to be in the house of the Lord. How excited we are that we're able to worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. We acknowledge that by our own merit, God, we have absolutely no right to enter into your presence. You are holy and we are our sinners. You are majestic and transcendent and we are ordinary and finite. It's only by the blood of Jesus that we approach your throne. What love you have for us that you would send your son to die for us. Oh God, we rejoice together in that beautiful reality. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit to be a helper and a comforter and a guide for us. We thank you that we're we're not people who wait in vain for the return of our Savior. But we know that you will return in the same way that your disciples saw you go. We pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
God, we know that while this time is, uh, this time of year is filled with joy for many, there are others who are suffering. So we lift up those who are hurting. We ask that the, the Prince of Peace would bring peace to grieving and anxious hearts. We remember that you, Lord Jesus, you were despised and you were rejected. You were a man of sorrow and pain, and you understand what it means to grieve. We pray that you would give an extra measure of discernment and compassion so that we can be people who minister to those who are hurting. May we be people who truly and honestly rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weep with those who are weeping. God, we pray that you would quiet our hearts as individuals and collectively here as a body as we approach Christmas Day. All of us have so much to get done, but it's all a complete waste if we missed you this season, Lord. We know that. So we pray that you would just slow us down, that you would cause us to rest in you, that you'd help us to be deep and fervent worshipers of you, especially as we celebrate the birth of Christ. God, we pray for the preaching of your word today. Your word is made clear by your spirit. And when that happens, it's powerful. Make us people of your word who are transformed by your spirit for your glory. God, I'm gonna try to faithfully apply your word to our lives this morning. God, but we need your Holy Spirit to apply it. So I pray for Holy Spirit applications press and prod people's hearts exactly where they need it. By your spirit, Lord, apply balm and ointment to the hearts who need healing. God, don't let us leave this place unchanged. And we know that we can't leave unchanged when we encounter you. That's impossible. We cannot know you and experience you without being truly changed by you. So Lord, change us this morning. Make us more and more into authentic worshipers of you. We thank you for the privilege that it is to gather in your name. Bless us now for your glory and for our joy. Amen. So for the last couple of weeks, I have been getting some very specific questions from two very important people in my life. And these are the kind of questions that really, really matter to these individuals. Like my answers, how I answer these questions They're going to play a huge factor in their lives, at least from their perspective. Let me mention some of these to you and see if you've ever been asked big questions like this before. I've been asked, is Christmas ever going to get here? Are we ever going to get our Christmas tree? Are you ever going to put any lights up on our house? Those key questions have come from my two daughters, age five and three, who just cannot wait for Christmas to be here. It's like the 24 days of December leading up to Christmas are like 24 years to these little girls. The hope and the expectancy that they have for Christmas morning, it just kind of consumes them in many ways. It's easy for me to reassure them and tell them, hey, just a, just a few more weeks, Christmas Day will be here but it's hard for them to sort of conceptualize this when it feels, to a five and a three-year-old, it feels just so, so far away. At least for the month of December, there is a, there's a joy and a hopeful expectancy, especially on the part of children, that Christmas is coming. 
But let's be honest, it's not just children who struggle in waiting for something that will bring joy. We all struggle to patiently wait for something that we can do nothing to actually bring about. It's hard to patiently and hopefully wait for something that God himself has to do. You know, the Bible is full of people who have, pa- have waited patiently and with great hope. They've sat there and they've waited on God. Sarah was 90 years old before she gave birth to Isaac. Joseph waited 13 years for God to free him from Potiphar's house and from prison and place him as second in command over all of Egypt. Moses saw the enslavement of his people in Egypt, but it wasn't until he was 80 years old that God appeared to him in a burning bush and told him to go and lead his people out of slavery. The Lord Jesus himself didn't start his public ministry until the age of 30. Over and over again in scripture, we see the Bible tells us, shows us that the Christian life in so many ways is about hoping and waiting. Well, this morning we are concluding our Advent series by looking at Luke's account where two or three month old baby Jesus is brought and presented in the temple. And specifically, we're going to look at the prophecy of Simeon. So by this point, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. The angels have appeared to the shepherds and they went over to see and worship Jesus. And now Jesus is going to be presented in the temple. Mary and Joseph are going to make a sacrifice. And Jesus is being dedicated here similar to how uh, Hannah would dedicate or Hannah dedicated Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1 if you remember that that passage back in the Old Testament. It's a similar imagery that's taking place here. Now, in this passage, we have some very familiar biblical figures. Although we don't see them mentioned by name in what we read a few minutes ago, we know obviously that Mary and Joseph are present here. The infant Jesus is obviously here, but specific attention is given to a man named Simeon. It's interesting, Simeon is not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. We really know very, very little about his life, but we do know that he was a righteous and devout man waiting on the consolation of Israel. Simeon is waiting for the comfort and the encouragement that will come to Israel in the Messiah. And this is something that Simeon and the people of Israel have been waiting for for a long, long time. They know that one day the Messiah has to come, but they don't know when. And Simeon specifically knows that this has to happen in his lifetime. So we have this this old man who's here. He's hoping, he's waiting for something. Indeed, he's hoping for someone who would change the world. And then one day, out of the blue, this young, unassuming couple with this ordinary looking child, they show up in the temple. What I want to try to do this morning is I want us to take a couple of minutes and walk through the passage together and sort of see the significance of what's happening. And then I want to try to make some very specific points, um, specific points of application that surround one great reality that I think this passage is pointing us to. So that's sort of the roadmap for where we're going to go this morning. All right, let's, let's begin by looking again at verses 22 to 24. I'm going to read it for us. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, 
they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now these verses, they may seem to be like sort of secondary details that we can just sort of read them and move on to what really matters. But these things are, these verses are actually quite significant. We're reminded first here that Jesus was a Jew and that he was dedicated to the Lord from the very beginning. Mary and Joseph here, they're fulfilling the requirements of the law. And really that sacrifice there is offered on behalf of Mary. It's a sacrifice that would have had to be offered after childbirth. Um, And the offering that is made here is really worth noting. I'm sure you Old Testament scholars, you've already caught this. But a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons is not the typical sacrifice that would be made. Usually the sacrifice would be a lamb. So what's going on here? I love the way that one theologian describes this. He says, Mary's offering is a public declaration that she is poor. Mary's offering is a public declaration that she is poor. Church, how many times do we see God choosing the least likely for the most important of tasks? A poor teenage girl to be the mother of our Lord. Fishermen, a trader, a zealot, and a thief to be the Lord's disciples. A great persecutor of Christians to become the greatest missionary the world has ever known in the Apostle Paul. God chooses and he uses the unlikely. If you're sitting here today and you're thinking that you have it all together, if you think that you're a person of clout and a person of significance, then the Lord will not use you for his glory and his kingdom without humbling you first. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 to 29. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Later in Luke's gospel, he records Jesus saying, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The humble sacrifice of Mary here in our passage, it it reminds us that God uses the poor and the meek and the unlikely for his glory. Now, I'm not not implying that those who have means cannot be used by God. I'm absolutely not implying that. But I would like to, to point out that all of us who have been blessed with earthly wealth, who've been blessed with means, we need to be on guard that pride doesn't seep into our hearts. Like I've done something to earn this or I, I deserve this. We need to pray that God would keep us humble. Mary's humble offering once again reminds us that God loves to use people the world would least expect. Even people like me and you. Let's pick back up in verse 25 here. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So here again, we have the old man Simeon. He's, he's waiting, he's hoping, he's trusting that he will see the promised Messiah. He's been promised by the Holy Spirit that he will see the Redeemer before he departs from the earth. 
But again, it's not just Simeon who's been waiting. The people of Israel have been waiting for their Messiah for a long, long time now. They've been waiting for the one who would come and deliver them from oppression and deliver them from bondage. Centuries have gone by since the last prophet spoke to the people of Israel. I mean, these these are people too, right? They have to be wondering, when on earth is the Messiah going to come? Is the one who's going to come and deliver us from this bondage, deliver us from this oppression, is he ever going to get here? How much longer, God, are things going to be like this? Our passage says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that's an important word there. The word that's, that's translated there, it also has a connotation of deliverance or restoration or encouragement. Simeon and the nation of Israel, even the entire world, although they don't realize it, they're waiting on this consolation. They're waiting, hoping, when is this, this deliverer going to come? And the consolation, church, the consolation was a person. It wasn't in a government takeover in Jerusalem. It wasn't in some kind of revolutionary act or revolutionary leader. No, the consolation, the hope was found in a person. And that person, of course, is Jesus. Jesus is the great hope for the world. When the Holy Spirit indicates to Simeon that this little baby, this little baby who's brought into the temple, he's the one he's been waiting for. He snatches Jesus up into his arms and he just sort of declares, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. God has been faithful to provide the promise to provide for the promise that he gave to Simeon to let him see the Messiah. He's been faithful to let Simeon see the hope for the world. Can you, just for a second, can you imagine the joy that Simeon must have felt as he sat there cradling Jesus in his arms? He's ready for God to go ahead and take him home right in the moment there. He has no fear of death. He can now depart in peace because he has seen the chosen one to see and possess Jesus right there in that moment is the climactic moment of Simeon's life. And that that same truth is true for all of us who have seen and known and possess Jesus. To see Jesus for who he he really is, for who he truly is, God in flesh, Savior and Lord. And to possess him as Savior and friend, that is the climactic moment in the life of the Christian. There's nothing greater. There's nothing higher than having Jesus as Savior. Now, there's, there's lots of things that we go through on this earth that change our lives forever. And we don't know what day it's going to be. We don't know when it's going to happen. But we all go through things that, in an instant, our lives are changed forever. Some of those things are positive, like going off to school, or a big career change, or a promotion getting married and having children. All those things are are positive things that we go through. But we face numerous difficulties that change us as well. Death, sickness, financial collapse, those are just a few things. But those things change our lives forever. But 
But friends, nothing, hear me this morning, nothing changes our lives more than the moment we possess Christ. In that moment when we receive Jesus as our Savior through faith, we go from death to life, from from darkness to light, from hopeless sinner to justified saint. What a treasure we have in Jesus. Now, I don't want to assume that everyone in this room has had the experience that I'm, I'm talking about. Maybe you're here and you have never truly trusted in Christ as your Savior. Look, I don't, I don't know what you're looking for, what you're hoping for in this life. I don't know what you think will bring you peace, will bring you satisfaction, will bring you forgiveness. Judging by what I see and, and hear from people, I think there's a good chance that you might think that money or sex or power or prestige, that that is going to do it for you. But I can tell you, I've talked to plenty of people who've had, the, had their fill with each one of those things and they are still searching. Many of you can testify to that as well. We all know people who seem to have it all and their hearts remain restless. They remain um, discontent. People who act like their life is great, like everything is awesome, but that's just a mask that they're wearing. Friend, you will remain restless and discontent until you find your hope in Jesus Christ. It's not in a political party. It's not in a retirement plan. It's not in anything else you might be looking forward to other than Christ. He's our hope. He's our fulfillment. He's our joy. The great hope of the entire world came in a person. And that's, that's the big reality I want you all to see this morning. Hope came in a person. And that person is the God-man, Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, I was at Barnes & Noble. And what I like to do when I go there is just sort of flip through a bunch of different books and read a little bit and then put it back and pick another one, read a little bit, try to get the, the gist of the book. Um, but I just, I flip through a bunch of different books while I'm there. Um, and then go about my day. But I was at Barnes and Noble a couple weeks ago and I picked up a book by a guy who was in his 20s and he was making a case for a particular uh, political party, political structure that will go unnamed because it doesn't really matter. And his premise, from what I can tell, was that if we would just adopt this particular political system, then all of the world's problems will go away. If we can all just sort of get on board with this idea, then then everything's going to be better. Poverty will disappear. People will just start being nice to each other. There will be peace on earth and all kinds of good stuff. And it was so obvious that this guy, I think he was like 28, young guy, that this guy really wanted to change the world. And just from the language that he was using and how he was writing, he was so convinced, he was so hopeful that this political system was going to do it. And I wanted, I wish he was right there standing next to me. I just wanted to grab him and talk to him and and say, um, all those are good desires. Those are good desires that we all should have. I myself have similar hopes for the world. But those desires, my friend, are never going to be fulfilled through a political system. They're never going to be fulfilled through a charismatic leader who has great policies. The longing and the hope for the, for the world that this guy had, that, that things could be made right, that everything could be as it should be, 
Church, it only comes through a person. Jesus is the hope of the world, and Jesus is the hope for us as Christians. Again, that is the big theme that we see in our passage. Jesus is the consolation. He is the restoration. He is the hope. So I want to press just for a minute. I want to press on that point by asking a question. Jesus is our hope, but how is it that Jesus is our hope? How is Jesus our hope? It's one thing for us to know that and say that and believe that, but it's important for us to see how. How does this apply to us, our believers? How is it that Jesus is our hope? There's a lot of ways we could think about this, but I've just got a couple that I really want you to see and hold on to this morning. So how's Jesus our hope? First, Jesus is our hope for righteousness. Jesus is our hope for righteousness. Here's what I mean by that. The only way for us to be made in right standing with God The only way for us to be justified before God is through Jesus. Now, many of us know that. We've heard that for a long time. We would happily say amen to that. But I want to point something out to you that maybe you haven't quite considered before. It's not just through Jesus' death that we're made righteous, but also through his life. Jesus had to live a life of perfect obedience to God in order to earn righteousness for us. Jesus had to obey the law on our behalf so that the the positive merits of his perfect obedience would be counted for us. This is sometimes referred to as Jesus' active obedience, while his suffering and dying is known as his passive obedience. Even from the very beginning of Jesus' life, we saw it in, in Luke 2, we find him sort of fulfilling the law's requirements. And through, through a faith in Jesus, through a trusting in, a clinging to, a relying on Christ, the righteousness of Christ, this is scandalous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It's counted, it's, it's assigned to us. It's counted towards us. It's a scandal. That's outrageous. We fail to live up to God's standards. Amen? We fail to live up to God's standards, but Jesus met those standards for us in his obedience. So I don't know how many of you play golf in this room, or you're familiar with golf, but there's a great illustration for this that I discovered on the golf course. So I am am not a good golfer by any means, but sometimes I like to play in charity tournaments where three or four people will, will make up a team, and in those tournaments, the rules are very different from regular golf. Typically, when I play golf, I hit the ball, then I have to go and try to find it, and then I hit it again. But when I play in these events, I get to hit my ball from wherever the best person on my team hits the ball. So his drive is my drive. His approach shot that lands right on the green is my approach shot. When the best player hits a 30-foot putt, that counts as me hitting a 30-foot putt. Even when I I shank one off into the water, I get to hit my next shot right there on the fairway. I mess up, but my mistake is covered. It's like I never made the mistake in the first place. Friends, that's what it means when Jesus is our hope for righteousness. His obedience is credited on our behalf. He lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He died a death that we never could. 
He is our righteousness when we possess him through faith. Second, Jesus is our hope for salvation. Jesus is our hope for salvation. I've said that, I don't know how many times already, but I wanna make it abundantly clear. Simeon says it right there in verse 30. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. But notice what he says after that. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory in your people, glory to your people, Israel. The significance of Jesus is not limited, limited to the Israel of the flesh. He is for all peoples, for every nation, every tribe, every tongue. In verse 31 here, we have the first mention in the New Testament, I believe, at least in Luke, that salvation is available to all peoples. Not that everyone is guaranteed to be saved, but that salvation is extended to everyone. This Jewish Messiah was not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. If you are a Christian, friend, you have been saved by Jesus and you are being kept for Jesus. You've been saved by Jesus and you're being kept for Jesus. Jude addresses this in his letter in verse one. He said, to those who are called beloved in the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. How many of us know the truth that, that Jesus is our hope for salvation and yet we keep it to ourselves? This is not a, a secret to hold on to. This is a truth to share. If you're a parent, start by teaching this to your children. If you have little nieces and little nephews or, or grandchildren running around, teach them, show them, remind them that Jesus is the hope for salvation. As your kids or grandchildren or whoever, little kids in your life, as they get more and more antsy this week, remind them that the hope for salvation in Jesus is so much better. Remind them with your words and show them with your life and your actions. The hope for salvation in Jesus is so much better than what they're hoping for under the tree. As you're opening gifts on Christmas morning, remind those little ones that Jesus is the greater gift. And again, don't just remind them verbally, show them with your life. Let's show them with our lives that Jesus is the greater gift. Now that, that may seem like over-spiritual and just sort of unnecessary, but I promise those little ones, they will remember it. And even as adults, we need that reminder as well. Finally, Jesus is our hope for restoration. Jesus is our hope for restoration. I know of no individual, of no philosophy, of no religion that looks at the world and says, yep, this is exactly how it should be. This is exactly how we, we want it to be. All of us, every single person on planet earth has this longing and this conviction that something is not right. Something, something's off. This is not how things should be. We all, all of us, we have a longing for, for shalom, for peace, and for wholeness. Jesus came to restore us, church, and he came to restore the world. And it starts in the here and now with our, individually, our restoration to God. 
Our sin has separated us from God. And in his great love for us, he sent Jesus so that we, be, we could be restored to him through his obedient life and sacrificial death. 1 Peter 3.18, for Jesus also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's that scandal there again, that he might bring us to God. Jesus restores relationship. He restores union with God. And he's at the right hand of God, continuing to make intercession for us. But Christ, he also promises restoration for the world at large. No matter how much, no matter how much evil, be encouraged by this, but no matter how much evil, how much suffering you see in life, how much you see in this world, we can be assured that God is going to make all things new. In the same way that Simeon was assured by the Holy Spirit that he would hold the Christ, that he would see the Messiah, we can be assured by God in his word that he's going to make all things new. Sometimes when life is really, really difficult, when life is really, really tough, that's the truth we need to hold on to. When it seems like things are never going to get better, Christian, be reminded God is going to make all things new. He's going to right the wrongs. He's going to make things right. We've been promised in the word of God that Jesus is coming, to, coming again and he will restore the world. Church, Simeon's prophecy is beautiful because it reminds us that Jesus is our great hope. It reminds us that waiting on God is worth the wait. It reminds us that God is faithful to the promises that he makes. As we prepare to take communion this morning, Christians, celebrate in your heart. Celebrate that Jesus is your hope. Be strengthened in your spirit by the Holy Spirit as you remember the mercies of Christ. You know, we, we try to do a good job each week in emphasizing who it is who's allowed to come forward, who needs to come forward and take communion, who needs to just remain in their seats uh, during this time. And we do that because there are warnings in Scripture for those who take communion in an unworthy manner. We sort of fence the table up here at the front for, for people's safety. Paul says that those who take this communion meal that we're going to take here in just a moment, those who take this meal in an unworthy manner eat and drink judgment on themselves. So we, we always want to be clear about who this meal is for. I want to read to you uh, question 81 from the Heidelberg Catechism. I just, I love the way, this is, this is beautiful. Hopefully you, you enjoy this as much as I do. It's real short. But the question is, who may come to the table? Who may come and receive communion? Just listen to this. If it describes you, if this statement describes you, then communion is open to you. It says, those who are displeased with themselves for their sins, yet trust that they are forgiven them and that their remaining infirmity is covered by the passion and death of Christ, who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to amend their life. If you hate your sin, you love your Savior and desire more and more to be strengthened in your faith, communion is open for you this morning. We'll be served at two stations here in the front. So as you feel led, you make your way forward, receive communion, you can go back to your seat, and you can take it there once you're ready.
Let me pray for us, and then we're going to continue to worship the Lord. Oh, Jesus, I, I thank you for the reminder, even as I'm preaching it. I've been thinking about it all, all week, but once again, the reminder that you are our hope and that we can be assured that your righteousness is counted to us, that you are our salvation, that you're going to restore this world. You're going to make all things new. God, we thank you for that. God, we thank you that you use the least likely to accomplish great things for your glory. What hope that provides for for people like me, God, that you can use me. Lord, I pray that as we get closer to Christmas Day, that there will be a hopeful, uh, expectant spirit on the part of us to rejoice in you, to rejoice in your coming, to rejoice in what you've done for us. That even if we're struggling, Lord, I pray that by your spirit, you would help us to rejoice. You would cause our hearts to sing and to enjoy you. Father, I pray you bless the rest of our time together for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.